This interview of Wisdom from the Top was recorded in 2020. From Luminary and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of former Medtronic CEO and Harvard Business School professor, Bill George. So I've spent the last literally uh, 17 years of my life trying to change leadership. I know that sounds arrogant, but if I can just impact one leader, Mm. that can make a difference because leaders have such impact on people. And I decided that's where I want to focus my time based on a solid purpose and a solid set of values. Now, Bill George went from Fortune 500 CEO to academic and changed the way we think about leadership. 500 Yes, he was a leader, and yes, a widely respected leader. But he was also unsatisfied with the model of leadership he saw around him, and even, sometimes, his own. So nearly 20 years ago, Bill left the corporate world to focus on leadership and to find out whether he could make a contribution to improving it. But before all that happened, Bill George was practically angling to become a corporate CEO from the time he could talk. It's all he thought about, even as a kid growing up in Muskegon, Minnesota in the 1950s and 60s. I've always seen myself as uh, in business and running a significant company. Now, that idea was planted by my father uh, back when I was 8, 9, and 10. He even named companies I should run, like Coca-Cola or IBM or Procter & Gamble. Turned out I worked at summer jobs for all three, but it was a pretty heavy trip for a 9-year-old kid. But I think the point was I'm an only child, and it's kind of like all his hopes and dreams were visited on me. He, uh, He thought he was a failure. He wanted me to make up for his shortcomings. You said your dad saw himself as a failure. What did he do professionally? Well, he was a consultant, and they were a small company that was sold out from under him. 
but uh, he thought he could have done a lot more. And so he wanted me to do a lot more and to do the things he couldn't do. So he used to give me the rules of leading and managing and the things you need to think about. And, wow. uh, and I actually pushed him away uh, because I'm very independent, but subliminally it sank in. Yeah. Coming out of my teenage years, it was the Sputnik era. So I went to Georgia Tech to become an engineer. Actually, uh, I really saw that as a stepping stone to leadership and to management. Hmm. And so that's why I went straight through from Georgia Tech to Harvard Business School. You you were sort of being groomed by your dad from the age of nine to be yes. a corporate leader. And when you graduated from business school, did you think, okay, now is the, now is the time for me to set off on my path to become a CEO? Absolutely. And hmm. it was like... A naive vision that you're, you know, it's a straight, straight rocket ship to the moon. And it wasn't just any company. It had to be a very large company. Wow. Then I decided I was 23 when I graduated from Harvard Business School. And I decided to go to work with several colleagues uh, at the, in the U.S. Department of Defense. They had some outstanding leaders these days. I thought we could learn from them, use our managerial ideas in the government. And so uh, there a group of uh, seven of us that went down there together and worked in the Defense Department as civilians. Hmm. I mean, I mean, kind of a, a very complicated time in the history of, oh, of the de- yes. Department of Defense, because on the one hand, it was like, at the time, seen as this innovative place, right? The the brain trust, the, what, are, what are they called? The the young- um, Whiz kids. Whiz kids, right? <laughs> this data-driven, management-driven, uh, innovative approach. Um, and in the end, of course, um, you know, the legacy of the Vietnam War really um, overshadowed that that approach. My colleagues and I help uncover the uh, systematic uh, falsification of the body count numbers in Vietnam, which was really the basis for building up our troop troops and the idea of a war of attrition, which is all totally flawed. Yeah. And so we went down there to serve our country, and within 60, 90 days, we had all turned against the war. Wow. And we spent the next two, three years trying to get us out of it. Not totally. I had other, a lot of other assignments, but yeah. I can tell you that was the orientation. Bill, um, pretty early on in your in your life, um, and after you graduated from Harvard and, and started your very promising career, um, your kind of your personal life was just derailed. I think in a period of a year and a half, both your mother and your fiance died. I uh, I went to Washington, kind of on top of the world. Lived with six classmates from Harvard Business School, all males, and uh, life was great. I was in the assistant secretary of the Air Force's office, and I got a call to step out. It was my father on the line, tell my mother had died that morning. And I was never close to my father, but I was very, very close to my mother as an only child. And I was devastated. She'd been ill, but nowhere near that. And uh, I'd just seen her a few weeks before. So it was a very hard time. Uh, She was kind of the epitome of everything I thought I should be as a human being, the Mm -hmm. values that I wanted to be always, all my life, even now. Uh, here we are uh, 50 years later, I still wanted her to be proud of what I'm doing, you know, and uh, proud of me. And so that was hard. And then I recovered from that. And uh, about, oh, six months later, fell in love with a woman from Georgia who was living a few blocks away from us in Washington. There was a lot of single people in, in Washington those mm-hmm. days. She was great. And we got engaged to be married, made plans to... Uh, you know, to have the wedding in Georgia. And she'd gone back home uh, to prepare for the wedding. She'd been having headaches, but there was no indication of anything serious. And uh, one Sunday morning, uh, 
we got a call from her parents saying that she died in the night of a malignant brain tumor. <laughs> and I was just devastated. I'm a person of faith, but there was nothing in my faith could explain why a 25-year-old <laughs> just disappears. My mother, natural order of things, painful, but you know, we lose parents and uh, it is natural order, but not a 25-year-old. So uh, uh, that was very, very difficult time. Unfortunately, I had friends around me who came and supported me, and uh, uh, but it was hard. I mean, is one of the ways you kind of coped with that was to throw yourself back into work? Not entirely. No, I did uh, a lot of reflection, did a lot of writing then. I was working hard, and in particular, the Undersecretary of the Navy was particularly kind to me and uh, during that time, as were others, and uh, we had a memorial service and those kind of things. But, uh, but then what happened was, and quite unusually, uh, that fall, a few months later, I was at a dinner party, and there was a single woman there, and she need, I gave her a ride home, and it turned out to be my wife, and we just had our 50th wedding <laughs> oh, anniversary wow. in, uh, in 19, uh, 2019. And uh, so, you know, I'm still processing all this 50 years later, but let me see, I feel blessed to have met Penny, my wife, and we've been very, very close, and she's my closest counselor, supporter, and she's there for me, and I was still grieving when I met her, so it was wow. an unusual time. Wow. So you would go on to certainly for the first, um, uh, the next sort of phase of your professional life to really kind of be involved with defense-related or defense-adjacent industries. You went to Lytton, um, and then you kind of rose up the ranks at Lytton, um, and then eventually to Honeywell. Um, and you were still a pretty y young man when you got to Honeywell. Um, what was Honeywell at the time? Was it was it mainly doing defense work? Going back to Lytton, I was, the reason I went there is because I met a mentor named Bob Bruder who promised me I could be a general manager by the time I was 30. Hmm. And we started not the defense business. I wasn't in that part of, of uh, Lytton Industries. I started the consumer microwave oven business when there was no business there. So that was an amazing opportunity. At 27, I'm general manager, and then I became president of this fledgling little company that goes from 10 million to 200 million and 200 people to 2,000. So it was a huge growth era, personal growth, made a lot of mistakes, I'm sure, but a great period. And we were highly successful and I loved it. I didn't love the corporation. Uh, hmm. The corporation's values were a direct opposition to mine. And so at a certain point in time, particularly when they're talking about what comes next and you want to come to Beverly Hills, no, I didn't the corporate headquarters. Then I had to buy into the culture and I had never done that. Hmm. So uh, that's when I started uh, talking to other people. I went back and talked to Coca-Cola and had a great opportunity there. Even talked to the CEO of Medtronic who wanted me to come as COO. Then I, uh, I joined Honeywell, a great mentor named Ed Spencer, who was a great global leader. And I thought I could learn so much. He gave me a great opportunity to come in, work directly for him for two years, and then to go to Europe as president of Honeywell Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Just a great opportunity. Yeah. And I was still in my 30s. And uh, wow, what a, what a special time there. I read that you have written that while you were at Honeywell, and this is a quote, that you lost sight of, of the purpose of my leadership. Right. What, what happened? I was grasping for the, uh, the brass ring. 
This had happened to me back in high school and college. I was so eager to get ahead and want to be elected as a leader that I lost sight of the people around me. Yeah. And at Honeywell, I had a lot of people around me that were good people and good relationships, but I was too eager to become CEO. And I find myself even dressing different, acting different, saying just the right things. How could this be? And I realized that I was kind of faking it to make it. I was outside. I, boy, I can conquer anything. I became Mr. Turnaround. That's not who I was. I wanted to be a builder. But I became Mr. Turnaround, laying off lots of people. Soon I got to do it with one turnaround, they give me another one. <clears throat> the last one I hit was aerospace and defense, where my heart has never really been. And uh, we hit all these cost overruns. Hmm. And I looked at myself, in the, and here I'm on a rising star at Honeywell. I looked at myself in the mirror. And what I saw was a miserable person, me. Hmm. And so I went home and told Penny what I was feeling, that I was really feeling empty inside. And she said, Bill, I've been trying to tell you this for a year. You just wouldn't refuse to listen. So she really nailed it. So you get to Medtronic in 1989. It's a relative, right. comparatively small company to, to Honeywell. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And uh, you were at first reluctant to go there because you wanted to. You thought you the important job was to be a Fortune 100 or Fortune 500 CEO, yeah. and and uh, and Medtronic was this kind of a small, midsize heart heart device maker. Um, but that actually would be the life changing experience for you when you. Re- I guess you really started to develop your outlook on what it means to be a leader. Yes, and that's what it really locked that in. So to go from a, you know, I thought I was a leader of people, but I really got much more focused on purpose. Hmm. And uh, Medtronic, that's what really got me excited. I talked to the founder for about three, four hours one night, and everyone I talked to was all about the mission of restoring Hmm. people to full life and health. That's what got me excited. So when you got to Medtronic, um, did you have, I mean, I'm assuming you, you thought, all right, let's see what we can do. Let's, let's make this company really big. Was that, was that what you thought? Yes, but we had a lot of things to change at first. Medtronic was a very small, it was less than a billion dollars, not very sophisticated in a lot of ways, great people, wonderful caliber people, but the way they ran the business didn't compare close to Honeywell, certainly not the global network I was used to when I was running, uh, Honeywell Europe. Uh, and so we really had a long way to go to build up the leadership team to achieve the ambitions and help a lot of people. He, here's my question. I mean, when you've got the right products, uh, you got a market for it. A lot of people have heart problems and they need uh, devices that Medtronic made. Um, if, if the product market fit is there, what can the leadership team then do to, to scale it, to grow it? To, I mean, in other words, what was the problem that existed if the product was already there? What, what was it that you were trying to solve? When I joined Medtronic, we were predominantly a pacemaker company. It's three quarters of our sales, and we mm-hmm. just made some other acquisitions. We were just getting into the defibrillator business. That was a must-do. Right. But uh, I envisioned the first six months or a year that I was there that our goal was to become the world's leading medical technology company, hmm. which we certainly were. And that meant building the company out in much more diversified ways in the neurological area than in the spine area. Ultimately, at the end of my tenure, we got in the diabetes business, but became a company where we could use our technology to help people in so many different fields. Fields where we had the innovation, the technology to make a difference in changing medical therapy. So my proudest accomplishment, in addition to expanding the number of patients is we changed the way medicine is practiced in so many areas that helped people in ways they never envisioned. So they didn't have to take drugs 
they could get a defibrillator that saved their lives and uh, without any side effects. And uh, they could take a diabetes pump that changed their life as a diabetic. Uh, and they could have neurological products or breakthrough products that help people with an incurable disease like Parkinson's. And it didn't cure the disease, but it, boy, it sure changed their life. It took hmm. away all the negative symptoms. That's what really excited me. Yeah. And uh, the thing I'm proudest of in my 13 years of Medtronic, we went from uh, restoring a uh, person every 100 seconds. We used to measure ourselves. How long does it take until another person is helped by a Medtronic device? It took 100 seconds. Now, when I left there, that number was about six seconds. Today, it's two per second. So uh, I feel that's the best measure of success. How many people are you helping every year? You, um, I think by the time you stepped down as CEO, uh, you, Medtronic was in the Fortune 500. It was, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, 381 or something like that. Yeah, we were about six and a half billion by the time I ended my last year as CEO. I stayed one year, excuse me, last year as chair. I had set a 10-year limit on being CEO. And that meant mm. that I had to have the right successor who could carry this on. And I found that person in Art Collins, and he'd been chief operating officer. And then I turned the baton over to him mm. in 2001. I really turned it over to him. It's interesting because then, you know, your sort of your professional career ends. And, and oftentimes in that situation, people in that situation will go find another job, running another company, which may have been an option, probably an option to you. But you actually made a pivot to a completely different career, a career for which you have become much better known for and for which you've made a much bigger impact, and that is a, a, a professor of business uh, and specifically around leadership at Harvard Business School. I know you, you, you spent some time in other places, but I guess by the, between the time you left Medtronic and the time you published your first book, um, Authentic Leadership, um, that really was a time where you started to, to – to, Kind of, I'm assuming, reflect on your on your own journey to figure out what is it that makes leaders good and strong, right? Is that I mean, how did that how did that idea even come out about putting out a book in in 2003? Well, I'd been reflecting on what leadership meant uh, for 20 years before that. Yeah, and when you're CEO, you can't write a thoughtful book. You're just too much into the game. It's yeah. just too active, yeah. and you can't even have perspective. Right. But uh, one of the reasons I wanted to move on early, uh, I thought 10 years was long enough to do the job, but I also felt like I'm only going to live once. And uh, I think there's a lot more I can do and contribute and I can explore in life. And uh, so I was 58 at the time and I didn't know what I was going to do. Yeah. I walked out of there and now I have lost my sense of purpose mm -hmm. with Medtronic. Uh, I lost my colleagues and... I said, what am I going to do now? Yeah. And so I went into a period of intense exploration for about six months. And then I went into a period of really getting engaged and seeing, could I do something totally new? So I moved to Switzerland. I got an opportunity to be a professor at two outstanding universities in Switzerland, one a technological institution like Georgia Tech, and one was a business school, IMD, a private business school, both outstanding. And so they both gave me opportunities to teach. So I didn't know how to teach. So I had to go teach, put my lesson plans together, put my syllabus together. And uh, that's when I was in Switzerland. I started writing a book because I really felt that leadership was on the wrong track. We were focusing on charisma. We were focusing on the style of the leader. Yeah. And um, maybe I'd failed style classes at Lytton and Honeywell. But I can tell you that I just thought it was the wrong thing, that yeah. we should allow people to be who they are and flourish 
as human beings for the best they are, regardless of their style or their yeah. charisma. But the important thing in leadership was character. Uh, and so uh, I really was committed to a whole different way of leading and instead of exerting power over people, to empowerment as the way to go. That if you can empower a whole team of people, I coach soccer for youth soccer for 12 yeah. years. <laughs> if you can empower a group of soccer players, you know, isn't it the same with business? Yes, it is. You know, how do we get the best out of everyone? Mm. Get them on the right positions where their passion is and then bring them together as a team. Yeah. And help them become the best they can be. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. This book came out in 2003, and, um, mm-hmm. and it was right around the time of like – you know, you got you had the Enron. It was WorldCom. There was a, a bunch of scandals. It was soon after the, the dot com crash, and here you are talking about what leaders need to have purpose and heart and building relationships and practicing solid values. And not, I mean, not not too long before this book came out, people were talking about leaders like Jack Welch as representing, yeah. uh, you know, what it meant to be a good leader. Did you get, uh, did, I mean, you must have had people say, oh, this is a bunch of like nonsense. Leaders need to be tough. They need to be this. They need to be that. Certainly publishers did. Certainly huh. in the people in the publishing field did. Huh. When I wrote that first book, 
uh, about Medtronic's story and my story, uh, they would say, look, no one's interested. It was about all having an organization having purpose yeah. and a congruence between your purpose and the organization. Uh-huh. That's what it was about. I brought that into authentic leadership. And so I, yeah, and I frankly came out, I was writing as Enron was going on, and I kept getting these phone calls all the way to Europe saying, what's going on? And I saw this crisis we were having, and it really, these failures really epitomized what was wrong. And we had to uh, uh, set out and try to change that. So I've spent the last literally, uh, let's say, 18 years, 17 years of my life trying to change leadership. I know that sounds arrogant. But if I can just impact one leader, mm. that can make a difference because leaders have such impact on people. And I decided that's where I want to focus my time on impacting leaders could go out in the world and make a difference based on a solid purpose and a solid set of values. Yeah, I remember because, um, of course, we met uh, in 2008. I took your class at, at mm-hmm. Harvard Business School. And, sure. and one of the things that really stuck with me, I remember so vividly, was – how much emphasis you put on the idea that the legacy of a leader is is how they groom their successor that yep. really that really is how a leader should be should be judged or one of the main ways we should judge a leader um how how, how did you come to that idea? i mean it's, it's it, it makes total sense right because most leaders they don't think about their successors because they're, they're they're wrapped up in their own ego and their own success and their own laurels right but actually a great leader thinks about developing the person who comes after them to continue to build this this business it's like it's like a it's like passing a baton in a in a in a relay race well the reason I want to work for a large company is I saw the legacy of large companies made over a hundred years yeah and but to do that I also studied leadership and found that the failures came when you had the wrong leader yeah as hard as Jack Welch found the right leader GE Jeff ML turned out to be the wrong leader. And GE will never be restored as a company. And so leadership matters and succession is hard. Becoming a CEO is a little bit like you become president of the United States. You get into that job and you're not prepared. We yeah. deal with teach CEOs at Harvard now uh, intensely. And we've had like 350 large company CEOs whose names you would recognize all come through our program. They don't really know until they get into the job. And so that's when the character comes through and you hit a crisis and that's when the real test is. It's like all the pretenses are stripped away and all the support structures. So I think it does get back to the character of the leader, the values of the leader, and what they can do in that organization to ensure it's on the right track. In your book, True North, um, you sort of begin with the premise that, that you you discover uh, your True North um, by reflecting on your, on your own life story. Right, and that's how you begin to understand what your values are and 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 what they're aligned with, and and it seems to me that this is actually a moment where, in some ways, for a leader, it it might be even easier to discover those things because you're kind of forced to face reality. When I wrote uh, True North, we I had a team of two or three researchers working with me, we went out and interviewed 125 people. And uh, we thought we maybe had mush because we had done like, uh, we had 3,000 pages of transcript. What do mm-hmm. we got here? We got to Colorado. Look at all this. We finally said, you know what stands out? People's life story. I would call people up and say, tell me, what made you such a successful leader? Yeah. And uh, Dick Kovacevich at Wells Fargo. He said, I don't want to talk about that. I want to tell you what got me where I am. Let me mm-hmm. tell you what, what were the 
key points. Let me tell you, I'm a small kid from a small town who worked in the corner grocery store. And yeah, that's where I learned everything about leadership and how you serve customers and being on the football field. So I got a lot of those stories. Howard Schultz, you know, how he started Starbucks and came out of his life story mm. just epitomized that. But we also found that almost everyone we talked to, and they were willing to talk about it in a confidential interview, and then they allowed us to publish it, had gone through a severe personal crisis. They got fired from their job. They had a severe health crisis. They lost their family. Uh, they saw people die. Whatever it was, they had had a crisis of some kind because it's easy to talk about your successes. You sound like you're talking from a resume, but can you talk about your failures and what did you learn? And you don't learn from success. I'm a tennis player. I didn't learn when I won the match. It's when I lost. That's all yeah. I can analyze. How would I fail? And so I think uh, great leaders learn from their difficult times, the pain they experience, like me being lost at Honeywell and not knowing where the guideposts were and what I really wanted to do and feeling like I was drifting. And the ones that deal with it and go personally into it come out much better. Because then when they face a crisis like we did in 2008 or you did in 2020, where we are right now, they're prepared hmm. because they know what they believe. They know their purpose in life. They know the company's purpose or mission, and they know their values. How important is it for a leader to show vulnerability? Very important. Vulnerability is power because everyone sees your vulnerabilities. The question is, do you try to fake it and blow past them as if it doesn't exist? Or can you be real? And if you're willing to be real and say, here's when I failed, I made these mistakes. Right. By the way, if you don't admit your mistakes, no one else can either admit theirs. So how do you know what's going on? So I used to say to people at Measure Act, you'll never get fired for making a mistake. You will get fired for covering one up. So here are the mistakes I've made. Now let's go back and say, what mistakes did you make? And what can we do to fix it, make it better? Do you, um, I mean, I'm sure you, you've come across leaders over your uh you know your sort of scholarly research, and even even before that, um, who don't like to talk about their failures, who think it's uh, who think it's weak to talk yes. about failures. So, what do you say to? I mean, how do you convince somebody who's like, I don't want. I've, I've interviewed people who say, why are you why are you asking me about my failures? And I always say because it's more interesting. It, it tells me more about about the kind of person you became. Uh, and occasionally, a lot of people say, "Well, why are you so focused on, on when I failed?" You know, and it's odd to me that they can't quite understand why why that's such an important part of 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 who they are and what they should talk about. What do you say? Even the people that have had big failures uh, who won't acknowledge them uh, are still in denial. Yeah. So I think until you can do that, you can't be real. And everyone knows around you there they can't be real either. So you have an organization where it's all political. Everything is politics. And like if you want to go into politics, run for office. But if you want to go into politics, don't go into business. And so I think it's really important that we give people that space to say, hey, I made some mistakes. That doesn't mean you could get fired. That just means you're real and you learn. Did you learn from it? When I, when I first met you, this was the, uh, the financial crisis of 2008 was well underway. And um, we had the Madoff scandal, and, and it was just got worse and worse. You know, the collapse of Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns, and all the things that happened in, in, at that time. Um, that was a crisis, a crisis that most leaders at the time um, 
would have said, this is going to be the hardest thing I have to deal with. You know, um, Here we are, in a, once again, in an economic crisis, but, but probably compounded by you know, by 10, like an economic crisis on steroids today, com maybe compared to 2008. And, um, and leaders are finding out in real time how to be crisis managers, crisis leaders. Um, so first of all, I mean, would you, would you agree that, that for any leader right now is probably going to be the most challenging moment of their professional lives? I think a real test of any leader is how well they lead in a crisis. It's easy to lead when things are going well and you can control the numbers, you use a few reserves and it looks good. But in a crisis, everything gets stripped away. As Warren Buffett said, when the tide goes out, you find out who's swimming naked. And that's what really happens to a lot of organizations. They don't haven't made it. So I was on the front lines of the 2008 crisis. I remember the Goldman Sachs board. I'd been on there for a number of years in an important leadership role. And wow, that was like, you think your flight's going down yeah. and can we get through this? Can yeah. the pilot get us through this no dive we're in? It was tense. And I would be in the Harvard classroom in September of 2008. And as soon as class was over, somebody would come in and say, Mr. George, you're supposed to be on a board call. I said, I have no board call today. Yes, one was called just about half an hour ago. And we were getting board calls urgently all the wow. time. And we had to make some momentous decisions, like becoming a bank holding company and taking uh, an investment from Warren Buffett at $10 billion. And these were big, big decisions. We just had to make them. As one of our board members, Ruth Simmons from Brown, said, you know, the train's leaving the station. Are we going to be on board or not? And so Goldman navigated it very well. But, you know, that was a crisis that affected uh, the financial community very strongly. It affected people who had investments in financial things quite strongly, but didn't affect everybody. Hmm. So now here we are in 2020, and we have a healthcare crisis that affects everyone. Everyone is afraid of getting COVID-19. I don't yeah. know anyone's not afraid of it. Some people are more cavalier about it. Anyone lives in a city certainly isn't. Sure. And everyone's afraid. It's changed. And then on top of that, because we shut down our economy last spring, now we're, uh, you know, we have an economic crisis. Yeah. And you just don't turn that around quickly. And then the third thing that happened, we've just never had such a crisis, period. We went through... Uh, a uh, we're going through, I shouldn't say went through, we're going through a race, race relations crisis. And uh, this is very severe because, let's be honest, there's tremendous amount of any income inequality in the U.S. And with COVID-19 and the economic impact of that, it hit most strongly on lower socioeconomic groups and people of color. All the statistics show that. And so, and then we had in Minneapolis, my hometown, we had the killing of George Floyd by police officers. Yeah. This now on top of the healthcare crisis, the income inequality crisis, and uh, to be honest, uh, a political cleavage in the country. And that is putting a lot of pressure on people of how to think through the complexity of that. It's not just one problem. This is like four problems all coming together that are intertwined inextricably. Yeah. I want to break some of these down. Um, let's let's first talk about just leading in in crisis, right? As a leader, right now, um, whether you are running a large enterprise or a small enterprise, or you're uh, an entrepreneur, um, and your 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 revenue dries up, you know, or is drying up very quickly, um, what where do you start? What do you what do you do in in that situation? 
Cash. Do you have enough cash to get through? Do you have liquidity? I've called so many CEOs last spring and said, you know, how's your liquidity? We had big meetings with CEOs that had come through our program at Harvard Business School. Always asking a question. I had some other organizations working with who would get 50 CEOs in a room and say, what are you doing to make sure you have enough cash to get through this crisis? And so the companies that really got in trouble and the first ones to go bankrupt were the private equity owned companies that leveraged up on debt and they had no cash, they had no liquidity. And I saw the same thing in the 2008 financial crisis. These banks had no liquidity. Fortunately, Goldman Sachs came into it with $126 billion in liquidity. So they got through it, but a lot of other organizations did not. So I've always believed in a conservative balance sheet uh, and projection, you don't spend all your money buying back stock, but you've got to have sound financials. Hmm. And the organization I was boards have always had sound financials, whereas the Exxon board, the Goldman board, the Medtronic board, Novartis board, very sound. But so the companies that didn't make it, like Hertz and AMC Theaters and J.C. Penney, yeah, uh, they had no backup, nowhere to go. But that's the whole idea of the Buffett idea of being uh, swimming naked. Yeah, but what if you are a business that that you know operates on on thin margins, like like the restaurant industry? They don't, they can't hold a lot of cash, right? Uh, even if you own a, a a large number of restaurant, you know, a chain of restaurants, it's that's challenging. So, what if you find yourself in a position where, you know, the cash cash is not going to get you through it? I have tremendous empathy for the small restaurant owners that had to shut down. And people are still coming back. It's not like everyone the right, business is booming. Right. It's going to be a while till it, maybe it's it's never going to be like it was in 2019. So they have to rethink their whole model about takeout and home delivery and all kinds of things. And and I think a lot of them did that very well. Those are the survivors, the ones that can go on offense, think positively about how do we change our business model to accommodate these times. And the companies that did that have done well, but uh, have less. Con- the large chains should have been putting the cash away. And if they didn't, I would say shame on them. Yeah. Uh, and so I uh, have less uh, concern for them. And some of them did go out of business, but uh, uh, that's kind of their problem. So, Bill, in, in 2009, you wrote a piece called The Seven Lessons for Leading in a Crisis. And it's, it's, more, it's as relevant today as it was then. And one of them, which I think is, is really important, was – you wrote, never, uh, never waste a good crisis. So now we're in the middle of a crisis. You're the CEO of an organization. Um, what does that mean? Does that mean that you actually, there are things you can do that you might not have been able to do before because of uh, inertia or, or bureaucracy or, or, you know, or whatever it might be that you can probably do now? People now are looking at their long-range plans, three to five years, and say, we're going to do all that in the next three to five months. Everything's got to be digital. They're rethinking two things, their business model, how they present themselves to the customers, and then their organization model. And the two go hand in hand. And so what the progressive companies are doing is figuring out how does what's the new era going to look like in my business? You know, will it be more telemarketing? Will it be more telemedicine? Will it be teleservice? Uh, can I do everything online? And those that had strong online presence, obviously Amazon has, uh, but organizations like Target, which made this conversion uh, about six years ago, and I was on the board and we never could get the former CEO's attention about doing everything online. Well, mm. thanks to Brian Cornell, everything's capable online yeah. so they could just shift the business model. Mm-hmm. Uh, Corey Berry at Best Buy, she 
rethought the whole Best Buy model. And shockingly, you know, when everything, all their stores were closed, their revenue is only down 6% because she had how to do business. And now she's been opening up stores and bringing people back in, but totally different standards, testing and safety and a lot of different how many people in the store. So a whole different business model. But to do that, then you've got to have a different organization model. You made the point that uh, does the inertia, problems you have inertia fall away. That's why I saw at Honeywell. No one wants change. Well, I'll tell you, this everyone is ready to change. And they're jumping at it and innovating. And this is going to set up a huge period of creativity in American life. <laughs> Many of the companies who weren't even in the vaccines business, like Merck and J&J, have gotten in just trying to solve the problem. They don't think they'll make a lot of money there. They just see an opportunity. They have a calling and a mission. Both are mission-driven companies. We're going to solve this problem. And so these mission-driven companies are flourishing now, whereas many of the ones that uh, were strictly about making money are finding out that they uh, are in trouble. Do you, you know, one of the things you also wrote back back in 2009 in advising leaders, you wrote, no matter how things, how bad things are now, they will get worse. Um, <laughs> I think that's probably true now as well. Um, there are some industries that may not come back, you know, and, and even if there is an economic recovery, you know, the world can't emerge from this in the same way. Our behaviors will change, you know, how we interact will change. And that, that doesn't even involve, you know, the sort of the political crisis, the social crisis that has emerged during this time. So, so do you still believe that, that things will still get worse? Things certainly have gotten worse for us in the United States with regard to the crisis. A lot of people want to wish it away, and it's still there. And the economic impact, in some ways it got better. Other ways, it's gotten a lot worse, and the harm done to people is long-term. Even back in the financial crisis in 2008, the banks got back on their feet, but the harm done to people was around 10 or 11 years later. And so I think these things have a long-lasting impact. And so I think the leader's job is not to kind of say, oh, it'll, you know, we'll have, it's like the flu, it'll go away, or to say, this is seasonal, or this is cyclical. It, we're in a systemic change in America. So habits and lifestyles are going to, are changing dramatically right in front of our face. The companies that are going to win in this market are the ones that figure out what the change is, then they shape the change. Mm. And so the Companies are going to be successful, the ones that are on the leading edge of this crisis, and adapt very quickly. Bill, in the past, corporations were very careful not to weigh in on um, uh, social issues or political issues. Um, I think a lot of people are saying we're not living in a time of political differences. We're living at a time of values differences. This is not uh, people criticizing Republicans or Republicans criticizing Democrats. It's a values fundamental difference in values and in, in, in outlook and the way that people see the world. Today, it seems very hard for corporations not to weigh in on some of the big social matters of the day, uh, racial injustice, um, the political crisis in Washington, D.C. And, and some people, I think, legitimately say silence is taking a position. By saying nothing, you are actually saying something. So what do you do? How do you navigate that? I mean, let's talk about racial justice for a moment. I mean, many large corporations are coming out and support, supporting demonstrators and protesters, and that, 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 that makes sense. That's easy to do. But, but there has to be more than just kind of a, you know, applauding or, or, or maybe even making a donation. There has to be, has to be something bigger than that, right? CEOs today 
are required to step into these social issues because they're affecting. It's being demanded of them by their employees. Yes. Look at the dust up with Facebook when Mark Zuckerberg sure. wouldn't address these values issues. I tell you, the employees, every CEO I talk to, the employees are demanding that they step up and take a position. And they are. Most of the great CEOs are really stepping into it. And they realize things have to change. And a lot of them have been afraid of two things. They've been afraid of the president of the United States who may come after him. He went after Ken Frazier after Ken resigned from his councils after Charlottesville. He went after Mike Roman at 3M on the on the N95 masks. Uh, and they're all they, they want to stay out of that crossfire. Yeah. And I understand that. No one wants to be in that position. And they've also been afraid of their shareholders. Now, this year they're saying, forget about the shareholders. 2020 is a wipeout year, but they are restructuring their business model, but also they're engaging and taking a position on these issues. And I I say, bravo, you have a responsibility to your employees, to your customers, and your community. So I think CEOs today realize they have an obligation starting at home, but then they need to take a bigger position on what it means to have a healthy community. And how can you have a healthy community if people of all races can't flourish? Immigrants, African-Americans, and how can they have a healthy company if everyone doesn't feel included? Uh, and But a lot of them have given lip service. Now they're stepping into the problem. Um, I mean, look, today the workplace – and the workplace is always going to change, right? The workplace is different. The people that Jack Welch oversaw in a company of tens of thousands of people is very different from uh, the corporate environment today. Um, um, gen, you know, millennials and – and Gen Z, and and they're, they 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 are their expectations are different. It's not just about being worker bees. It's about feeling fulfilled and also being respected, um, and taken care of and uh, valued. Things that uh, maybe previous generations didn't emphasize as much. Um, it's a different it's a different workforce today, and it's going to be a different workforce in five and ten years. Um, that seems to be both a challenge and an opportunity for for a leader today? Leaders need to think through that workforce of the future. And unfortunately, a lot of baby boomers who are CEOs, they have disdain for the millennials, say, oh, these people want to change jobs all the time. And I say, no, no, you don't understand. They want to work for a company for a real purpose that they can align with their own purpose. If your company isn't clear, and if you're not clear as CEO what we stand for, what our values are, and what our mission is, then uh, they're not going to follow you. They want to know you're authentic. They know who's authentic and who's not. And they want to work for someone who's authentic and real and who cares because they care. If you don't care about climate change, if you don't care about uh, racial equality, if you don't care about income inequality, then they don't want to work there. So they go to work and the talent will go somewhere else. But I think this is so important that uh, CEOs understand their own people. And how do you understand them? You got to be with them all the time. You've got to hear their life experiences. You can't sit in your office and hold business reviews all the time. You need to be out with your people. And if you've got a global company, that's a lot of work. You need to be there with them. If you want to be there, you want to be on the front line. You're like a soccer coach. You're All these soccer coaches are right on the front line the whole time. They don't have, they're not hiding behind the staff. They're doing it. That's Phil George, former CEO of Medtronic. He's still on the faculty at Harvard Business School, where he's still teaching leaders how to find their true north. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. 
I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.